0: Good morning, David. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, Tim.
1: Good morning, both.
0: Ah, uh, David, it's your rest day, isn't it?
2: It's my rest day. I love waking up at quarter past six. by rest day to speak to you guys. It's great. How, no, How are you? I'm good. I'm a bit tired, but um, I'm, I'm going to nap this afternoon because I don't have to watch the bike race this afternoon. So that'll be nice. How has I'll it been be back so and, far? It, it's been amazing. I think it's. I think we can all vouch. It's probably. The best first nine days any tour has had, well since I've been watching anyway or doing mm. it's been um every single day's had a its own story, and since we last spoke, I think it's been nuts with Pogacar, doing what he's doing with with the ride that Ben O'Connor did yesterday Cav uh, i think Cav. It's, just, it's just been and Cav and Mark Cavendish of course in <laughs> Chateauroux. I was trying to think what the other one was <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with Cav. There you go. Forgot about that already. <laughs> That's how crazy this tour is. But thank but God for kn- Cav because it's going to make the next week really exciting.
1: But you know, when you on the, I was always curious about the whole notion of the of the rest day because obviously, you know, if it was me, I'd be just lying flat on my back for 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 ten hours and then get up late. But pro cyclists, you have to keep cycling don't you have to keep your muscles going but is this a day where you might do a bit of sightseeing slower on a bike you might just wherever you are go out for a ride to get the legs turning and actually take in an ancient monument or a cathedral or or a chateau as you go past it
2: yeah it depends where you are i think each team's got their different ways of doing it if you're a gc team then they're out doing a three-hour ride because you have to keep your body ticking over and you have to keep just everything moving and and also i think at a A kind of a physiological you have to keep your kind of everything balanced Mm -hmm. if you stop your body goes into reset mode but a lot of the riders will do that i mean i used to when i was younger i just take the day completely off i couldn't understand why we go riding but i was young and i could get away with it then as i got older i had to ride my bike to keep going but yeah a lot of the teams will will ride into a local the local town village and go to a cafe you'll have a tour de france team just rocking up at a cafe and sitting there and ordering cappuccinos but it depends where you are, and it depends on the weather. I think the weather's appalling. I'm not sure if it is today, probably judging by yesterday, in which case they'll just all be on home trainers probably. But yeah, I think, sadly, Tim, the days have gone where you could just really go out and chill, and you'd be reprimanded if you went walkabout, that's for sure. So it's, um, but it is a chance to actually immerse yourself for the first time outside of your bubble, and that's always quite interesting and quite fun because everyone just comes up and is, you do the Tour de France? Like, yep.
0: But, yeah. but this yeah, is cool. the cultural Tour de France. Of course, we have, we're we a bit slower and we have time. Yeah. But just to remind you where we're going, we're going 1,064 kilometers across France in this podcast, <laughs> passing nine regions. Um, and, and you know in, in total, there are... Um, 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 no, sorry, four regions. In total, there are f- 13 regions in France, or so four out of 13 regions, so quite a bit of France, and and, and then nine departments. And There are 96 departments in, in France. So it's kind of a weird system. I don't know if you ever figured it out, how they administer their sort of how they divide the c- and conquer the country.
2: Um, I know departments, that's the last two numbers in your number plate, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. So 64 was Biritz. I remember that. And Nice was zero six. Uh, I've lived in zero six and sixty four and zero three, I think. L'En, up in Saint Quentin. So, that's but true. that's the only thing I know about departments. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it's it's very confusing for most people because I mean it's been there since the French Revolution, and it was really a way to get people to feel that they were in the same country. So they changed the region you were in from what you know people would call it for example, Dodogne to something administrative. And um and uh, you know, so you see that all that's why you have when you're tourists, I mean at least I always get confused because okay, we're going to let's say the French Riviera, there's no region called that. It's called, mm-hmm. you know, Rhône Alp or something Maritime Alp or something like that. And um and then they change it all the time. So just the town I live in in France south of france has changed four times since i've been there f- in 10 years the
2: name hmm. well so here's a weird one then why is it len zero 01 and paris is 75? And 75 and 7593? i think are the numbers for paris or 90 91. I actually but don't it's, know. it's len zero one, 01 which is weird and len is where we are i think now yeah or pro- we've gone, just gone through it
1: it would be a willful numerical attempt to uh, de-hierarchicalise Paris, I should imagine.
2: <laughs> That's
1: definitely I not a word, do some by research the way.
0: for next time. Maybe I can answer that question of the number system. There you go. Yeah. But then uh, each of these, dip- these 96 departments are then divided into uh, you know districts, or arrondissements, as they call them in French. And each of these, are then there are 323 of those, and each of these are then divided into cartons, which there are almost 2,000 of. And then there are villages or communes, which is almost 37,000 of those. And each of these have an administration. Can you believe that?
2: Yes, I can. I've lived there. It's a nightmare.
1: Tell you, yeah. tell you what's interesting culturally, though, is that they, it, the regions have museums. Uh, I mean, they have the natural fabric churches, grand houses... But the French system of supporting museums, opera houses, concert halls, theatres, is okay. Centralised, but every area has state-funded arts and cultural venues. Now that's not to say that they do it better than other people necessarily, but it is interesting that it that it's bar Germany. It's probably the strongest national network of cultural infrastructure in Europe and that probably is a, the grid that is laid on France after the revolution where a lot of things are destroyed or all the things are converted i mean we'll get to that in the Loire valley won't we later today that aristocratic and royal palaces become museums during the, the revolution and a lot of them still are but that's quite an interesting overlay i think
0: so they they're sponsored by the i mean the, the state was that it tim so not the yeah,
1: region yeah the the, the the state what? and the or re- the region but it, they're, yeah, they're yeah. still but yeah. it's still there's of course there are private museums and private institutions in France but fewer than many other countries and actually the state collections are centrally held and and distributed um uh, and, and that again so you go to a place like Tours and there's a very good museum there with some interesting things there. you go to Rouen and you find a Caravaggio you know you, <laughs> you it's not something you find now let's not use it to kick Britain but you know you don't you don't really find many Caravaggios in regional museums of course there's one in Edinburgh but that's not a regional museum. You know it's know what? national capital.
2: In um, that tour, when you got in touch with me, Tim, to to go and visit the the cathedral, wasn't it that that had the the wonderful? The Colmar, bons no, bons, no it's,
1: yeah, yeah, next to, it was, a, yeah, it was. A, no, it was actually a yeah. former leper colony, but it was it was a monastery as well.
2: Monastery. That same tour, um, we went to a town called uh, Brude, I think, in Loire, and uh, it just I had some time, I had a break in commentary, and I went on a walk in the centre. And it's a little local museum and it had the most amazing mirror exhibition. Yeah. And it was just so random. And it was kind of, <laughs> of thought of a thing that would be in a city normally. So yeah, kind of it is pretty amazing they do that.
0: But that's, I think we talked about it in the first very first podcast, Tim that if you're not a you know, big art knower that I'm not a big art knower, but you go to france and you go into some town and there's a museum and there's always a picasso and then it there's a text saying oh picasso used to come here or live here or go to this bar here and i've seen it i don't know how many times everywhere almost and how come
1: well that's the south isn't it i mean he didn't he didn't hang out in many, many other places yeah and well often and and that idea about um Picasso famously uh, at, La, uh, at the Column d'Or which is in the near the Fondation Magde, near Saint-Paul-de-Vence and that's where he would make drawings or draw on tablecloths or napkins and then these things would be um, often in lieu of eating or there was a time I think when he was asked if I think someone asked him if he would um, settle a bill uh, by giving a drawing and he, he said I just wanted to pay, pay my bill not buy the restaurant so he was aware of his own market power I think <laughs>
0: Anyway, let's talk about the, the first region or, or first area, the Loire Valley, which really has two regions. So let's not talk more about that. But the, can we just talk about the Loire Valley, Tim? Is that OK? Yeah. Talking about that way?
1: Yeah. So you, we're talking about the Touraine, aren't we? And, and what goes yeah. uh, east. Uh, I, I, Loire's really interesting, is it? Because it, it sort of divides f- the top third of France from the bottom two thirds. The weather's always supposed to change when you cross the Loire. And... and um, and this sense of flow from uh, from east to west, which we again touched on uh, uh, last week. but this And also in the wines. I love the fact that, you know, Sancerre and Puy Fumé, which are closer to the source of the Loire Valley, they're at the eastern end. If you ever taste those and then have a glass of, um, of Muscadet, which is at the other end, it's at the, you know, the estuary, you literally can taste the saltiness of the grapes mm. in, the, in the Muscadet. So you get, you get this span. But I think the Loire Valley culturally is most... Celebrated for for its chateau, you know, and this was where the royalty and aristocracy had their places, their 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 retreats. You know, it's far enough away from Paris to get away, but it was close enough to be able to get back. And um, and the the tour went past the, the great Ambroise chateau, and the reason why that's so phenomenal isn't just because it's a the royal chateau it's because the arguably the greatest artist philosopher scientist that the west has produced or certainly a man who would have claimed to be there spent the last 4 years of his life there which is leonardo da vinci and it's amazing how we've, we're talking about french and french culture um, but the sense of ownership that france has uh, around the, the the reputation of Leonardo is really strong because, you know, he only produced it's still contested, but let's say between 18 and 20, there are 18 and 20 finished paintings by Leonardo in existence, and um, the Louvre has, you know, four great paintings, and three of them came because Leonardo was there, uh, came to, to France at the end of his life, and, and they, those ended up circuitously in the Royal Collection.
2: That was the fact that I didn't know before this Tour de France, and Unfortunately, the race had already passed it before we started coverage um, because I was looking up all my facts on it. Because I didn't realise that he was uh, in the court, taken by the court of France for those final years. And that's why the Mona Lisa is in France, isn't it? Because that's where it it was. Yeah, it was nuts. And and that great lake
1: painting, that bizarre, the last painting we we think was the last painting he ever did of St John the Baptist with the sort of eyes almost flickering and the the finger pointing upwards. And this... this, um, that soft sfumato, you know, where the contrasts are almost blurred in that painting, but of course, the reason why Leonardo produced so few works was because he he was constantly thinking, drawing, sketching, inventing. So even in the last four years, when he's, I mean, by our standards, he's not that old, but uh, you know, he's this, he he goes to France to Umbra when he's sixty four, dies just just over 3 years later and he's sorting out his papers but he's still designing a canal system never built between the Loire and the Saône rivers and um he's he's there's a new palace complex he's designing for uh, Francis I um the young king who 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 was instrumental in bring over remember the french had conquered Milan and um Uh, I suppose they couldn't bring the Last Supper to France, but they could um, certainly encourage the court, the the great artist responsible for it, to become come and be court painter. And actually, it was it was money and status for Leonardo. I think in the last years of his life, Francis, you know, had much more clout and was able to offer him, you know, a place to live, work, and he became part of the grand tour. Sort of, you know, cardinals would often There's a famous story of of one of the cardinals dropping by to see Leonardo in fifteen eighteen. So, as much as you come and visit the king, you come and visit Leonardo but, um you, you you just get this sense uh, even in the latter years of his life of him still doing things, and there's a famous birthday pageant and celebration wh- which he designed. so you know does he does the, the the backdrop the paintings, masks pageants, and um that was reminded me as well of, of the Tour de France, the scale of this kind of pageant that is that he's put on um and of course, Leonardo. There are claims, there have been claims for a long time that he invented the bicycle. It's brilliant, it still gets pedalled out. Colnago um, actually did a bike, I think, in 2004, which they called after Leonardo da Vinci, and the then... um owner, president, was, was claiming that he, of course he invented the bicycle, which is brilliant because it's that whole contested myth of did the French, did the Italians, did the British invent it. Anyway, this um, this, this drawing was discovered in 1974 when the great Codex Atlanticus, which are one of the great sets of drawings, uh, portfolios of drawings, which is in Milan, was being restored. And it's pretty clear that, um so the, the academics were trying to say it was some of the monks who were, who were involved before, back in the day, but I think it was just a highly placed uh, restoration academic who put it in there. But well, it was later scrutinised and the pa- the drawing was at least post-1880, probably post-1920. But I love the idea that someone went to the trouble of doing this drawing of a bicycle that looks close to the current bike, but not quite. And then and then the creation myth is that Leonardo invented it.
0: Did you know, Tim, that he was also a musician?
1: Yeah, I did, yeah. Do you know painting, the story about it? that? No, tell us.
0: No, I just read a bit, little bit about it many years ago because I, I um, heard a historian talk about it, and he said that he, he um, played music, he also composed music, he never wrote it down. The only music he wrote down was the sound of water because he was obsessed with water, apparently, and both engineering-wise, but also the, the sound of different types of water. And he would try to write down, he would sit down by the river and try to write down in notes what does this water sound like? (laughs) Which is crazy. But he also invented um, uh, a range of musical instruments. And one of them is called a uh, viola, which is a really strange instrument. It's like a mechanic piano, but it plays strings. Do you want to hear it? Because (laughs) I have a good recording. (laughs) I'd love to, yeah. (laughs) And there's a because there's this Polish music, what do you call it? Engineer or or, or musical, you know, he makes music craftsmen and he um, um, <coughs> he's called and he restored all of the those sort of um, old instruments that were invented and he actually plays them this is not da Vinci's music but it's his instrument it's actually the instrument they're taken from the drawings that was recreated um, two years ago and so here here we go So this is a piano playing. So Leonardo described this as a one-man string assembly. So that might be the first synthesizer ever.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Of course, the invention of electronic, of proto-electronic music. I'd like to hear the notation of his Sounds of Water and make someone play that and see how close it actually gets. Incidentally, I don't know why, but the the obsession with water is a point well made. There are sketches he made of the flow of the Loire and the idea of him sitting on the riverbanks of the Loire at Amboise actually making drawings is quite um, touching, I think. The the old man still wrestling with that. I I remember once making a program, a television program about Leonardo, and one of his early works is uh, uh, the the Annunciation. And it is a an amazing work for a young man, where the feathers of the, on the back of the angel Gabriel have sort of been scrutinised and reproduced from his studies from nature and so on. Um, but so he has the Virgin uh, seated, and her robe goes over the back of the chair. And it looks like she has three legs, which I made this point that even you know there's nothing accidental in composition, but this is a slight error. It looks clunky, and that he then realises that her hand doesn't quite reach the um, the book. So he extends the arm, and if you actually look at the arm it 's like a telescoped arm, and made the point that even you know even the greatest artists you know, could, could, have, could have to bodge and, and learn their trade that way and I got loads of abusive letters saying like, how dare I arrogantly say that Leonardo <laughs> could possibly make I just, well in leonardo 's world, everything was about pushing and trying, um, and that isn 't a clunky way of getting back to the tour de France, but it is interesting how we have to own our mistakes or how we try and cover up from them, or how we deal with things you know rather than scrap them. Painting, he just decided he better extend the arm in the end. Wow. <laughs> uh,
0: David, did you notice? I mean, the number of castles that the few that the peloton passed. I mean, I don't know how many, but
2: oh, yeah, was quite a lot. And, yeah, I mean, I don't because there's uh, the Loire, I didn't realize either. Loire's the longest river in France, it's 1006 kilometers. I don't know mm. why I didn't know that either. But uh, why are there so many castles there in chateaus? Because I've uh, never really actually given much thought to that.
1: It's transportation, isn't it, Mikael, as well? I, I mean, it, it's, it's the great road of trade and access or uh, the yeah. need for defence, I think.
0: And the Vikings loved the Loire. he
1: would always bring I mean, it back to the Scandinavians, story. wouldn't he? <laughs> there? Yeah, yeah <laughs> they loved
0: it. No, <laughs> I, I guess, I guess the, um, the, the the whole valley was a sort of um playground for kings and princes and noble people i guess um uh, in the from the 15th to the 18th century i guess i don't know you know much more about that tim
1: i think so but also it the the in the pre-revolutionary regional you know regions of france ...and the territorial fights and struggles. I mean, a big river like the Loire is a is a border, isn't it? Or some, And it's something defendable as well as a, 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 a route through.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, I guess uh, when I see these castles... ...there's one thing that stands out... ...when you compare them to so many other castles in France... ...which is most castles you see in France are built... ...as a defensive piece of architecture... On the top of a hill, far away from water, really hard to you know get into. Like you do it in Lord of Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. sort of. But these castles are in the middle of a valley, you know, down in the valley by the water, with a huge garden. It's pretty easy to attack, but very decorative. So I was thinking maybe that was is connected to the, the whole idea of Renaissance and Enlightenment and sort of, uh, um, you know, putting decorative features on 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 castles rather than having them be a functional castle they they'll pro- probably be i guess a sort of piece of luxury to show off right yeah i don't know if they, but it no, seems that, like that, that way
1: that's true i mean with chenonso which the which the tour did go past as well didn't it you know that's a 13th century castle but um and then got uh but again that's that's actually across the water uh, as the name would suggest I love that now because I remember going as a as a when I was much younger, and there are two gardens, as I recall, each with the initial of the a particular king's lover. I think it was Henry the Second. I mean, he had one was Diane de Poitiers, the other I think was was it Catherine. Anyway, and the, there are there are there are initials in the garden, which seem to me the most flagrant display of uh, marital infidelity you could ever see.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> there's a bit I mean,
2: the, I think the last frontier was they were cast around the thirteenth fourteenth century. So it was the border with Aquitaine, and so it was the the old English-France battles that were going on. And I guess once peace times hit, they just made the most out of the pretty region. But, um, but yeah. yeah, well,
1: but we I get, just imagine cultural, speak out through it, Yeah, Okay,
0: go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, it just. It's I, the, just, I, it's just that, I was just imagining the Enlightenment, Tim, that that period of like um, art and, and beauty, but also. The sort of idea of science and mathematics and clarity and, and you know, so for example, uh, René Descartes lived in Loire, in one of those castles, and said in a cold room. He described, uh, he couldn't think if the room wasn't cold, because the whole idea was to divide he, himself from the science he was doing. Uh, so departing religion and feelings and emotions from pure thought, I guess. And he wrote a lot about that, uh, which is um, an idea that still has, co- still is conquering the world, I guess. But and, and all those um, castles, and it, for me, is it is sort of a, um, a you know a manifestation of that period, that whole period.
1: Yeah, and, but cultural layering again, and the shift in in uh, priority and use, and we, you know, we, I don't know. I tend to think that great buildings must always have been revered in just in different ways but it it turns out you know that's not always the case i mean you know that the where well, leonardo was buried in a little cemetery uh, and actually it fell into disrepair and during the revolution i think many buildings were kind of sacked and so on so We don't actually know whether his bones... His bones were rediscovered, in inverted commas, and because the skull was very large, so this was in a body that was rediscovered near where the fragment of his tomb, which had been destroyed in the revolution, was found. And because there was a large skull, this was presupposed, I suppose, that one of the the great thinkers and the, perhaps a man who knew more and had the greatest curiosity, certainly in the legends of Western art and civilization. So he must've had an enormous head to keep that brain in anyway. So, the, so this was the body that's never been scientifically scanned that is now buried in the tomb that now commemorates Leonardo. And I kind of, I find it strange, but in, in oddly reassuring that, um, culture changes, you know, and that things that, of course I don't approve of cultural vandalism, but the idea that um, everything is revered and set in stone is quite, is is obviously something that we, we as human beings try to do to stave off the inevitable forces of time and that, uh, but I like the fact that you know, we, we can't defeat that and you, and you it's funny that the Mona Lisa which is in Paris and that's the end of the journey along with all the other great Leonardo paintings in, in the Louvre Many people have written about the Mona Lisa and why it's so great, you know, and that's probably another program. I can I can tell you why the force of (laughs) celebrity and culture has made this thing so important, but not disproportionately so to to all other works of art. But one of the interesting things about the Mona Lisa is if you look in the background, there's this. Well, it looks to me like kind of an Alpine valley, but the center there's this scene where the ravages of geological time are clear and the thing that's always talked about with the mona lisa is the is the expression on her face the lips is she about to break into a smile or returning from a smile but it's that that's a kind of nanosecond and it's i think there's a tension between the contrast of time in that painting that we're constantly dealing with but never explicitly in our lives you know it's the split second of now against the, the these immense forces that we're aware of and that are most obviously manifest in the geological Things that surround us and how slow that the, the planetary evolution has taken place, and I find that with you know with with, with a lot of the sort of castles and chateaux in different ways, the way they've been restored, layered, crumbled, and so on. Mm.
0: Yes, yes, true. Um, and you know, I wonder what they use those chateaux for today. If we went and visit, if whether you could stay in some of them, probably you can.
1: The ones I visited, uh, smaller ones that they often have art exhibitions i've seen in them uh there's a lot of kind of medieval jousts and banqueting re- reconfigured uh for t- for, for tourism <laughs> um but yeah y- you're right they would th- that would be the next thing although um uh, it, yeah hotels tend to be looking looking to uh <laughs> aren't we going more bijou and boutique isn't that happening more and more rather than vast but yeah, it, yeah that would be right. a good airbnb wouldn't it? airbnb and amboise
0: I'm looking at it yeah. right now. You, you can actually rent an entire castle in the Loire for six thousand euros next week. So that's good.
1: <laughs> you can buy. You yeah. can buy a crumbling chateau probably for a, add three noughts to that as well. But the, the maintenance is quite a, quite expensive, I yeah. think. Yeah, I, I guess. I, so. Yeah, I mean, I noticed because a surprising number of them are still privately owned,
2: which is quite nuts. But I think, right. as you said, uh, Tim, it's, it's not many people have the. The means to maintain a chateau on the Loire.
1: So there's a small chateau at Giza that I used to go and visit a bit, um, which is to the west of Tours. I mean, just a, 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 one of the many amazing buildings that you know has no great status internationally, but it's just just one of the many many chateaux there. And they have artists in residency programs, so they invite people come and spend summers there and um, and paint, and then they they put on displays. It's it's, it's interesting. Hmm.
0: Maybe maybe we can do that—not just art, but we'll just talk about it. <laughs> yeah. But um, um, another thing, Tim, uh, David, is of course the wine in this region is incredible. It's, I guess, it's one of the biggest—if it's not—if it's not the biggest wine region um, in France—and um, known for its white wines, right?
1: Yeah, actually, I quite like the the reds of um, Chinon. Uh, a- not bad, actually, but yeah, you're right. It's a white wine. It's a white wine region.
0: Yeah, like Sancerre is from Loire um, and so on. Um, and um, I've, I, I went there last year, and I noticed that um, there's a, quite a big change going on in, 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 in how wines are made and how they're viewed. And so this whole movement of um, <coughs> natural wines or... Or whatever you want to call them, but not pro- pr- not chemically processed wines, is huge in the Loire um, at at the moment. Um, and as, as um, uh, you know, I, I try to sort of figure out wh- why is that happening exactly there. Uh, and and um, it seems that um, um, first of all, the land is cheaper there, so it's uh, you can go down from Bourgogne and uh, if you're a winemaker, and it's cheaper, and there's a lot of small winemakers, but it's it's also a a revolt against the sort of industrialization and globalization of wine uh, that's been going on in France. Um, it's a very famous um, film, I don't know if you've seen it, called Vino Have you seen that film? Yeah. It's, it's an amazing film about how this one guy called um, Michel Roland, who's like a wine consultant or a, a winemaker, he travels around to all the wineries and, and he, he's from Bordeaux. But he knows how to make a wine that gives you a 95 to 100 score on the Robert Parker scale, which is, gives out the, the and, and he can simply he- help winemakers do that. And it gives you this really uh, heavy, red, uh, very drinkable wine. But it also makes wine, at least according to these wine farmers in that film, taste the same all over France. And, and I guess that the whole. Movement towards more local, more small farms, natural wines, not processed, etc., is, is a sort of revolt against that idea of, uh, you know, wine should taste the same in every supermarket in the world. Um, any it, thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it, well, I do. Yeah, it, I think the interesting thing because Burgundy still has these tiny parcels of land but mm. the global market for them and the demand for them so if you want a bottle of Roman romani conti drc i mean the i've seen the little parcels of land that that's produced from i mean a, you know sort of back garden size almost i mean not quite and so um you're right it's about being able to acquire things where you can experiment There's, you uh, the i don't think burgundian wine is in any way um uh, uniform i think it's amazing no. I mean, the most amazing thing yeah. it's probably the most amazing wine in the world because of its kind of small yeah. scale nature but you can't really experiment with because of the, the, the money and the prices and the, the markets and the demand that's there and Bordeaux's a different different proposition i suppose i mean we'll get to that won't with the end of the tour yeah but um so I, I think the notion of experimentation but also the weather is so varied in the loire valley i mean it, it, i've spent mm. summers there and it, you really do get well let's say three seasons in a day a lot of the time the further west you go there and so i suppose the idea of in the end just trying to give in to the forces of nature rather than trying to harness and control them the whole time maybe is is, is is inevitable but the, and, and that's why a lot of natural wines will say you just you not quite go with the flow but you allow nature to take its course much more than trying to control it which i think is interesting absolutely
0: and, and we're moving into uh, burgundy for a short while in the tour i guess um the southern part of, of burgundy but not for very long but uh that gives us the permit to talk about burgundy <laughs>
1: Yes, <laughs> monasteries as well. That whole kind of monastic tradition. Did you um? You mentioned a film uh, uh, um, about wine recently, but there was a great film whose name escapes me. But I'll, But the point is, it's the moment that's the most interesting. Thing. <clears throat> the great, what's called the Judgment of Paris in nineteen seventy six, where. Uh, unknown internationally anyway american producers came over and did a blind tasting against french it was organized by a, a man a wonderful man called steven Spurrier, who actually died a year ago but it, so he arranged this and actually wrote about it and and um the the americans won the blind tasting comprehensively across the board not in every section but they, they, <laughs> they won it and that had a phenomenal I impact on french wine because the 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 assumed complete the assumed status of you know being infinitely better than anywhere else but particularly the the upstarts of the new world um was fundamentally changed then and i think that also had a bearing on you know what we were just talking about with with um, loire valley wine producers but bordeaux certainly started to up its game then and and um and anyway the interesting thing there is also you see this, there are parallels aren't there in cycling you know the fact that the French dominated French and Italians dominated and then obviously the, the Belgians the Dutch but the, the upstarts from the new world uh, started to see, t- take it by storm and then even the Brits who'd been languishing behind and our wine isn't bad now either we're, you know we're on the rise I'm not <laughs> sure we're going to win the Tour de France for wine anytime soon but we're still winning some awards for champagne and some white wine <laughs>
2: what one of the things I've noticed from living in France, and it might just be my personal experience, but also from spending a lot of time in states and Asia, does it? And this is the cultural difference between wine in France and in the New World, let's say, is that it's almost a faux pas at the at the, the table to discuss the wine itself, what's in the glass, to to comment on its um, on the nose or the body. It's you're supposed to the cultured thing is to know where the wine's from and discuss the region, the place, the time you went, the anecdotes from the region. Rather than, it, it's almost, it, it's a bit bourgeoisie to actually talk about and discuss the content of the glass. You've got to talk about your anecdotes around that region. And it's a, it's a really weird phenomenon. And I guess that's part of the fact that there is something to talk about. Whereas with New World wine, you can't really talk about the region so much. There isn't the history surrounding it. So it's that's a huge cultural difference, and I suppose that was maybe the complacency. Tim was the fact that New World was actually taking the wine very seriously and not have not able to lean on the the cultural relevance of it.
1: It's true, but uh, and also that there's a massively interesting relationship between wine and other other uh, visual culture, for example, and um, uh, and. Again, in Burgundy, because because of the ancient nature of it and the small scale parceling, you there's not at the, the, the moment. I mean, things are changing, but the idea of visionary architecture. Whereas in Spain, for example, many major architects have been commissioned to make wineries. Portugal, mm-hmm. but the New World, Northern California. I mean, most major architects have uh, have produced um buildings and then the the idea of art i mean again it started in bordeaux the idea of getting great artists to design the labels it's a uh, route rothschild um innovation just after the second world war but that's the new world really sort of pushed that idea as well and that also is is you know plays out but the great producers of burgundy for example you know the label designs on the great wines have changed i think very little um, and and again mm. so you play on one level you've got to play on history and continuity and a kind of distilled uh, rarity and then uh, in another level there's a much more interesting engagement with 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 broader uh, cultures and cultural exchange, and I suppose the idea of wine is a is meant to be the kind of dist- literally the juice, the distilled essence of terroir, which is the essence of a particular place, and that's where um, the, the more pretentious conversations can, can happen around wine. But they're quite interesting to me how how they're, they're perceived as somehow expressing the essence of of, 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 of something. But Not it, just grapes.
0: It seems to me that almost the opposite is happening in in large parts of the Loire where if you just look at the labels, they're very modern. And this is, again, all these young new wine producers doing natural wines, etc. And sort of almost like a a, a LP or, you know, a record cover, they look. Um, And and which is such a contrast to the, um, you know, uh, burgundy wine labels and how they're made and how you're supposed to talk about them. Um,
2: I'm I'm a sucker uh, for a good label.
0: Yeah, so am I. (laughs) <laughs> That's you, you've done the same as me right <laughs> yeah. that looks great doesn't really matter yeah. what the wine is yeah. yeah yeah
1: cool yeah which is obviously obviously <laughs> is uh is the uh it's the height of visual cultural sophistication but is actually uh, a very pointless exercise but i once tried to get a television show off the ground I'm, a television documentary i'm still going to do it one day um where one the, of the, the, the great wine tastes i'm going to keep keep her name quiet for the moment because um that I want to, I want this idea to happen at some stage. But the idea was, or the idea I was trying to pitch was that we would, we, we would let's just focus on Mouton Rothschild, and we would, I would choose the best, best in a vertical four labels of their vintages, their claret vintages since the Second World War, and she would mm. choose the best four vintages from the time, and we'd do a taste-off and see how that worked. But that was just an excuse for me to get to drink eight great <laughs> phenomenal Bordeaux. But but it is interesting to look at the... I mean, there's no... there is There, was the, there could be no possible controlled connection between what Picasso or Francis Bacon or Juan Miró actually produced in terms of the label and the vintage of a particular ear and how it's evolved, <laughs> but it's still a nice idea to consider it.
0: I love that. Can we talk about cathedrals just a little bit? Because I think it's such an important thing in France. Um, I mean, just the landscape is almost defined by cathedrals. And um, I don't know if you noticed. Uh, you said you didn't notice you passed, and we actually did pass nine um, cathedrals uh, in in Loire. Some of them are pretty uh, big, but I. <coughs> I just think it's such an important part of culture. And, and, and uh, I read a book about uh, French history where they talk about um, something called collective memory, meaning that we all have our own memory of our childhood and taste and uh, what people said to us and so on that sort of made us. But they talk about how a society can have a memory And that memory is not stored in individuals but stored in architecture and in france particularly in cathedrals um, that were all built in the 12 or most of them in the 1200 where there was a lot of money but also a period where you wanted to get out of the, the feudal society where you know a singular priest would would tell you whether you were you know believing in god or not and into a completely different idea of religion of being individual we are all divine like that sort of idea so we can all go into a cathedral and release the spirit that we have and so on um and whether you're religious or not you know it, it meant a lot to people and you can you can still see that all over france um, um, that idea of a building that just moves up into the sky and has a completely different notion of time not not as you know our short life of you know whatever, 80, 80 years we live, mm-hmm. but uh, time before we were here, time when we are here, and time when we are gone, and the cathedral is still there, pointing up to the sky. And I think that's just absolutely, it's, it's astonishingly beautiful idea um, um, to do that. So when we go, I, I really do want to go into a cathedral.
2: Mm. Why is it open when we run? on tour before rather than at Maidstone Studios in Kent, Ned and I would always jump in our Bromptons and visit cathedrals. It was kind of one of our uh, little kind of pleasures in the mornings when we had time because we'd always arrive the night before the finish town. And i I don't, I'd do that when I was a bike racer as well. Often I'd go and visit the days before the race if we were somewhere. Because I do, and and for no religious reason, uh, just for that that sense of awe. Because even today, they're incredible things, constructions, pieces of architecture and art. And and you're right, because there's one thing that this was, what, three years ago? Was it three years ago when Notre Dame uh, burnt? It was, wasn't it? Yeah. And so a few months later, the Tour de France was arriving into Paris. And in every single time they've, pu- they've arrived into Paris in the past, they always make the hero shots of Notre Dame. And that year, they totally avoided it. And they didn't tell us. It was in the book, and everyone expected it. And we thought, we're going to see it, and it's going to be quite sad. And they didn't show one shot of Notre Dame in its kind of decrepit, burnt state. And I was on live TV, and it suddenly occurred to me that France didn't want the world to see it because it it represented something that hurt them too much. It hurt their... The Tour de France is there for them to show off their culture, their, their art, their architecture, the, the, the landscape, the, the terroir. Yet it, it genuinely felt like France was bleeding, France was hurt. And it suddenly occurred to me during it that how important Notre Dame de Paris is to France. And, and that it actually was like they'd been, had a, a, a wound, an injury, and they wanted to just keep it quiet, keep it bandaged and plastered up, and keep it hidden from the world until it was ready again.
0: Well, do you know? Do you know, David, a funny fact? Oh, you know how I love facts and numbers. Uh, when you say, "Oh, this town is 554 kilometers from Paris," but where in Paris? Do you know what that is? Like, ki- that to- kilometer zero, Notre Dame de Paris. Except isn't that interesting? So that's it's the center of everything. In a way, but, symbolically.
1: But it's interesting that, uh, I mean, given the revolution and the fact that France won't sanction, I mean, the state doesn't sanction religion, religion is, 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 is separate, as it were, how important those symbols remain. And actually, I mean, there the were brutal parts of the of the revolution but they tend to be focused on the aristocracy per se and aristocratic buildings and the churches broadly speaking got off quite lightly I mean you think about just the carnage that Cromwell and the Puritans did to some of the English churches so in England are all our um, uh, pre-Cromwellian or Puritan art most of it's destroyed so that in, in churches you know you go to Ely Cathedral and the, the the statue has literally been hacked off the wall. You just see the wounds. Um, and France, maybe cause, just because of the scale, I suppose, but also it's interesting that, that Catholicism remained and uh, w- w- was challenged, I was going to say peacefully, but relatively peacefully, there were wars of religion, but by, by, by Huguenots, but Protestantism didn't seek to uh, violate Catholicism as happened more violently in other parts of, of the world or, or, or of Europe. So it's interesting that this thing remains in an essentially secular state. You have these amazingly powerful symbols of religion all over, and they become these staging posts, really.
0: Yeah, and and like the centre of everything. like You can always find the centre of a French city by asking for the cathedral. And, and, you know, another interesting thing, Tim, is how they look. Uh, I didn't know that until I had a sort of a tour of a cathedral, and they, um, the, the guy told me, well, it... It used to look very differently, but it's sort of been—it's almost like an archaeology. Like it—it changes with every season and and taste. And so gothic and then decorative. Yeah, the
1: the purity of architecture in France, uh, French cathedrals. Because if you think about it, they take centuries to build. I mean, the, Mm. the, the practical aspect of this. So as taste changes, then things get added on. I mean, even even Chartres, which is one of the purer cathedrals, still has Romanesque and Gothic. Features to it, but the insides interest me because obviously pews or chairs, uh, pews are kind of nineteenth-century additions fundamentally. But the cathedrals are these great open spaces, and that's the thing I love about cathedrals is the is this cavernous sense of space, Mm. and you and you understand that you know to a uh, let's say an illiterate fifteenth-century peasant who this was this weekly. Coming together in this unbelievable, miraculous construction, you could see how the idea of the divine would be present. But at the same time, there were um, gullies down the side of the cathedral. I knew this from Chartres, where they, after the, the, the you know, the the, um, the pilgrims would sort of sleep there and then be kicked out in the morning to go and get food or whatever. And then it would literally be kind of sluiced down because of what mm. had to happen there at night. So, the sacred and profane, kind of interesting mix. But. Um, I love the smell of cathedrals actually. I have a thing and and churches too in broadly because you get this amazing mixture of in in some of the country churches you visit there's a kind of mustiness uh in a catholic church or high high church in, in 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 anglicanism. You get the mixture of the trace of incense and smells and I love that kind of mixture that you get in there. Um and that you know obviously is 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 um is just a uh um, it's the first thing you notice, and maybe the thing that you can—it's most difficult to articulate. But I'm—I'm I'm fa- fascinated by what's the smell of the peloton, David? Because um <laughs> obviously regionally it depends where you are, but uh, no one ever talks about that. But it must be rank on occasions, and it must be um, very different at d- different times. But there must be a, a generic smell that, when I've asked you that question, in your mind now you can—you can recall it.
2: You know, it's—it's. It's, uh... Isidro Nozal. There was one rider in two thousands, early two thousands, late nineties, who stank of body odor, and I still remember that. You <laughs> <He> couldn't <laughs> ride behind him because he reeked. And I <laughs> and he's the only other rider. He's the only other rider that's that's been like that. But other than that, you know what? There there isn't much smell. I think, namely because, it, oddly, I think when you're that fit, you don't weirdly, you don't smell, which is a really strange thing to say. Your body odor doesn't smell. I think you're just, you're, your body's running so rich and you're you're transpiring all the time that it's almost just kind of water coming out of you. And and as for, it's quite hard to smell when you've got so much air rushing in you <laughs> kind of all the time, you know, because it's just like, it's, it's it's you don't really use your nose much. And then everything's just passing by. I think it's quite, the particles are just going by too quickly. So oddly, smell is one of the things in cycling that, in the pro peloton that almost doesn't exist. And even when you're going through kind of spring fields, you don't really get it. It's it's lacking massively. Sound on the, other, on the other hand, there is, there's just the, and I think it's, again, it's something you're in, you're almost in a bubble. So you hear all the little mechanics because you're traveling at the same speed. But it's when I've been at bike races and I've been at the side of the road and it comes by, that it's amazing and probably, Where it's the coolest sound is on a TT bike, because it just makes such a beautiful sound. It's got this kind of, it just, it feels like it's cutting through the air, and it's got all the carbon wheels, and when you're at the saddle, it goes, (laughs) and you you feel like you're on this crazy machine, but again, you don't really hear it when you're on it. You hear it when you're kind of at the side, and, and a rider comes by, and it just sounds so impressive, so it's almost like you're numbed to your senses when you're on a bike, and there's a lot of chat, when we made the film Time Trial, we, we had the microphone on the bike and we, I think the thing that took people away the most was the, the talking and the conversations and the, the orders being barked around. It's, it's that that I think people never really see or hear. And, and not forgetting that when you're in the peloton, and again, it's that, you've got that constant air rushing by your ears and you've got your earpiece in and you've got the bike. So it's, it's a kind of moving cacophony but it's just the same for hour after hour after hour. So you become, you block it out eventually. So it just becomes white noise. So so the whole Peloton experience is is very much that. It's white noise. It's your kind of, your senses are almost become numbed by the end of the day. And it's it's a really strange place. But, but time trials are definitely the noisiest because you're on your own. And as counterintuitive as that sounds, instead of being surrounded by 200 other cyclists, you're on your own, but you've got these aero helmets which funnel air through. So you're getting a really kind of narrow channel of air just flying by your ear, ear both your ears, and you've got your earpiece in, and you've got the noisy bike, and tight, ty- and you've got your breathing is at full capacity effort, and actually it's your breathing was always the thing I'd focus on, and it was the breathing out because you'd you get into this re- rhythm of breathing out because the air always just gets sucked back in again, cause it's a vacuum, <laughs> but then you'd like focus on the the, the outward push. And that became the kind of almost like meditation. You'd be at kind of one hundred and eighty heart rate for well, when you are fit, but for an hour, which is a huge volume of air that's going in and out of your body, and that becomes the just the, the the monotonous, just like just like that for an hour, and it would just become the rhythm. and And I think that's the same when you go hard. When you see riders attack, you, the thing that they'll be hearing and focusing on the whole time will be their, that outward push of air.
1: I was thinking about the mountains, though, as well. When you, as a cyclist who's never pushed himself in the way that you're talking about, when you get to the mountains, A, I, you know, I tend to be alone. I don't cycle in a great big peloton, and even okay. if I did, I'd be dropped. But also, that's when you become aware of your breathing. But presumably, again, when you get to the mountains the experience of the peloton is you're even closer to the crowds on the side of the road and as you're going slower by definition you're more aware of the volume of, sort of noise that's coming from yeah. them rather than your own internal sounds and rhythms.
2: Again, that, that's a, a, with the, that only really ha- happens at the sharp end of the race where you're getting that huge excitement of the fans who've been waiting there for hours, sometimes days and normally slightly inebriated and it does give you a huge amount of energy I think the most we ever had, I think, in any bike race since this day was the 2012 Olympics in London, where it was just we couldn't speak to each other in the peloton. Couldn't, you couldn't hear the radio. You couldn't talk to each other because the crowds were so loud all the time. And that was just an insanity. But generally, the people at the side of the road, again, if you're at the sharp end, when you see those pictures of the person off the front in the mountain and the crowds peeling apart, they're almost immune to it. And occasionally you'll see a rider swing out. And, and if they swing out to bu- knock a, a, a fan out the way, it's because they're getting distracted. Because otherwise they don't notice. You don't notice anything. You're just in this tunnel. And you're pushing yourself so hard that you're in, in that hyper-focus we've talked about before, Tim, where it's just you block out the whole world. And I think the mo- the moment you start to notice is when you start to lose concentration. So it's a, it's a really weird one. Most of the riders who are in that that place, won't be able to tell you anything about the crowds, because they've shut yeah. them out.
1: So when you approach, as the, as the tour's now done, the Alps, do you look up and see these immense things in the distance, and as you get closer to them, they become more like a wall, and then we're getting into the territory of art's obsession with that and the sublime. I mean, I've got a, a Turner image I want to talk about for us to end on uh, sometime mm-hmm. soon. But, or are you still literally, as well as metaphorically in the zone, so you're not actually looking beyond you know, the immediate road ahead? Or do you have this sense of an impending wall of um, that is to be climbed?
2: Y- yeah. I mean, again, it depends on the race and depends where you are in the race. If you're at the front, you know it's coming. And again, you're, you're- you've got all the the distances and you see the people and you kind of, you do understand the grandiosity of it all. But I think it, it actually hits you harder when you're dropped off the back because then it becomes really kind of relevant. You see the people weaving, the kind of the road just weaving ahead and all the people there. And that's actually when it becomes amazing because by that point, and it's happened to me when you're on your own struggling injured and then people, it's much more individual. You notice every single person. And sometimes that's out of shame because you're embarrassed that you're off the back, you're dropped. But then it switches to just this, the most wonderful encouragement. That's where Tour de France fans are the best. They be at the front or the back, they, they support everybody. And almost the riders at the back, by that point, everyone's calmed down. And they're normally fans, they know what, who the riders are, and they're shouting and encouraging you. and It, it really gives you this, this sense of responsibility to kind of not let people down. And and so f- I think that's what's been strange the past year, is not having fans at the side of the road. Mm. It, it kind of did change the sport. It kind of it, it made it... It wasn't the same. And as soon as this Tour de France started this year and the people at the side of the road again, you kind of said, oh, it's the Tour de France is back. Whereas last year it felt sparse and it didn't really f- have that, that same magic that, that only the Tour de France has. And that comes from not just the landscape and... and but it comes from the people at the side of the road
0: but when you go when we go to the alps and or to the pyrenees where you go up in the mountains you really because it's so dense that you, then you really see the, the crowd there and it strikes me that has become a culture like a real culture like you see the same characters year after i don't know if you see it as a writer but for example there's this old guy who's a devil and you see him every year Right, yeah. um, and apparently he's done that for 25 years. Or the, right. what Lomper. do you call them? The Dutch people that dress up as um, I can't remember what and do a special dance and uh, all the flags yeah, and this sort of. Yeah. It's
2: it's just a it's a big carnival, isn't it? So people just get dressed up and and want to be spotted. And it always makes me laugh when somebody's been there for for hours or days, and then when they come by, they're they're looking at the helicopter waving rather than the bike race. <laughs> it's like, come on, really. <laughs> But that's why people get dressed up to be spotted. I think, but yeah, so it's, it's just part of the events. It's part the fact that people often people go there for the for the carnival, for the f- to be at the Tour de France rather than watch the Tour de France.
0: But when I think about our conversation, we started in in Brittany, and it was clearly we talked about nature and you know the sea and the ocean and uh, our connection to you know big nature, etc now we've been talking about kings and castles and renaissance and cathedrals and wine and what words should we put on on the Alps because it's such a dramatic change of scenery isn't it and, and weather and everything
1: well we should we should use the sublime in the way that Edmund Burke talked about it in, a, in, in the 1759 about this idea about our Our vulnerability, but the awe that we feel when we're confronted by those kind of forces. There's an amazing Turner painting. Um, I'll just draw a picture for you, paint a picture of you, um, uh, which which shows a vortex where the sun is obscured by clouds, but you see it poking through, and there's this... bright light but the vortex of cloud and then you realise that cloud is swirling around into mountain and the mountains are Alps and in the foreground there are these bodies that some of which are still being sort of murdered by a group of people you can see on the right hand side and then in the distance you see the tiny silhouette of an elephant and a man on top of it and it's Hannibal (coughs) and the, the painting is called Snowstorm Hannibal and his army crossing the Alps it was finished and exhibited in 1812 and so there's a whole historic context of the napoleonic wars and uh, he, turner like many artists hadn't been able to travel till um there are various moments during the wars where they could travel but they hadn't traveled as extensively as possible so turner goes to the alps I mean, he visits first of all beginning 182 but he goes to the alps wanting to see the immense forces of nature which he does and then like many people he uses it as a backdrop and projects because history painting is, is is seen as a much higher form. I mean, Turner's one of those artists who can elevate landscape to the status of history painting. But I love that image because in order to paint it, Turner... He, he's not able to put himself in alpine storms regularly, but whenever there are storms in England, he goes out and sketches. There's a famous account of him on a, a, a storm in a friend's house in Yorkshire, and him standing there and trying to sketch amidst it all and take it all in, and then he's reputed to have had himself tied to a mast on a boat during a, a, a storm at sea so that he could feel the storm <laughs> from within. Anyway, see, and so there's, there's that our desire to uh, to confront nature, to be reminded of our kind of, tininess and the sense of you know our overwhelming place in the grand scheme of things and i would imagine the you know this vortex of uh of storm and weather and landscape um and these bodies strewn you know this is definitely an image for the tour de france as you as you start to prepare to go and kind of confront these um the these I- I- immense forces
2: yeah really especially i'm just looking at the painting now it's amazing yeah that's that's kind of probably how most of the peloton felt yesterday (laughs) because it was just savage (laughs) and and it's true that kind of that's the thing with the mountains as well especially the Alps when the weather turns it's just it is horrific and I think seeing the race yesterday and seeing kind of the riders when they finish and Geraint Thomas he looked like one of those Instagram pictures social media pictures where you can put the aging app on it just looked (laughs) like he'd aged 40 years in 140 kilometers and and i think that's what it does and and i think the alps are the only place that can do that where the, when the weather turns it becomes it it, it does become survival uh, and when i say survival survival to just get through the race because it's uh, and and i think that's what's that's what's magical about the tour de france because it just as an athlete it takes you to those places that you would never i mean places inside your head that you would never otherwise go it's it's yeah it's otherworldly that's for sure
1: what about death and the spectre of death um it's pretty real when you i mean it, it's the it's the deep fear when you you see these forces and you, you feel that you could be extinguished at any moment but can you not think about death so explicitly what i mean the speed you're at <clears throat> it could happen any moment but what about mortality uh, when, when you're riding a bike
2: um i, I don't know i don't think you can't really think about that. I mean, it's. It, I think the, the worst bits are when it's been in mountains where it's happened at the Giro d'Italia where it's been one of those horrific days and you find yourself in between groups and you're going hypothermic and there's nothing you can do and and you lose, you saw yesterday just everyone was losing their hands, feeling their hands they couldn't break. and. But I think it, it's more that sense of masochism. You generally know you're going to make it, but it's it's going to be horrible. I mean, I've only had one time where I thought I was a cropper and it was when I was young. In Valencia, I was off the front racing and I was on my own and I was coming down a mountain pass and obviously you don't know the descents. And I came ripping around this corner. It was a switchback and it was had barriers, Armco barriers around the side and just a drop off. And I thought it was gonna be a, a, a full vertical drop. And it was amazing because it was only, I knew about two seconds, three seconds before that I wasn't gonna make it round. And I just was coming so fast, I just slammed on my brakes, couldn't even tilt it down, just hit the barriers and flipped over. And in that moment, I thought, oh, no, I'm going, I'm going (laughs) down, like properly going fucking down now. And there was no fear whatsoever, which was really weird. And I flipped over and it was, it wasn't, it was about 70 degrees and my bike disappeared and I hung on to stuff. But there was a moment when I hit the barriers and I thought, oh, fuck, this is how it's going to end. And it was—I remember always that—and thinking, well, I'm not scared at least when that happens, because at that point in time, everything's happening so fast and yet so slow. There's—you just resign yourself to the inevitability. It's—it's um, it's a weird one.
1: I love All it. Right. Your last—the last words on earth that David Miller was heard to us were, "Fuck, I'm going down." That's good. <laughs> I'm going down. Do you, do you want to? These aren't the last words of Leonardo. I don't want, but—but. But, um, Amongst the late, the last um, papers that we know are by him, he writes. So he's thinking and continues to think, and then he's clearly interrupted by something, a thought, and then he just writes etc. And then scribbles, <laughs> peke <laughs> La, la minestra si fredi because the soup's getting cold. So he actually, in the middle of it all, someone's come in with a bowl of soup for him. and Then he's remembered <laughs> the, the smell. So I love the idea this the mundanity of having these extraordinary thoughts. And then he works, and then goes, etc. Cetera, Said, et cetera, et cetera. "Oh yeah, the soup's getting cold," and stops. But it, I love that he writes it down too. <laughs> anyway, my coffee's getting cold. I don't want to end on such a mundane note, but I need yeah, another no, cup of I coffee don't. soon. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. <laughs>
0: Yeah, thank you, Tim. All right, uh, I'll see you next Monday, I guess.
2: Next rest day.
0: And we're going south now, aren't we?
1: Von kind of, two, I hope. But also, we're going underground. I've got a real treat for you. Yeah. I've got a real treat for you all. Uh, near a place called Barjac, and a German artist who's done the most extraordinary things I've ever seen uh, an artist do in a landscape. His name's Anselm Kiefer.
0: Great. Let's see if we can put the Turner painting in the in in the um, show notes, David. I will. Yeah. All right. See you guys. Bye bye. Have a
1: good week. Bye.